Hi, my name is Mark LeBlanc and I serve as the chairman of the board for Indie Books International. In addition, I run a speaking business out of uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've been in the field speaking, training, coaching, and serving people for now going on my 40th year. At Indie Books International, we believe that um, your greatest marketing tool is marketing with a book. And while we certainly as authors would want to market and sell more books, the real truth is our philosophy is it's less about the book and more about what the book can lead to, whether it's a, more keynote speeches or a coaching clients or consulting uh, engagements, that the magic happens when people experience you through your book and we feel that your best strategy is a speech or uh, speaking for fee or uh, for what we call showcase uh, purposes uh, to do more of the good work that you are called and compelled to do. Um, with that, welcome to our Marketing with a Book uh, podcast. We do this every single week and post them on various platforms, uh, including YouTube uh, and Spotify and iTunes. And what I'd like to do first and foremost is just uh, we have a couple of authors in our studio audience today. Um, Carrie, would you just take a moment to introduce yourself and tell us about um, your uh, most recent, uh, recently published book? Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. My name is Dr. Carrie, and I am a psychologist, speaker, and author out of Denver, Colorado. And I am the author of the book Just Launched. Self-help on the go because you are not broken, but life gets tricky. Ah, uh, nice. And in the last couple of years, your book is needed uh, probably more than ever before. It uh, seems like folks are feeling pretty anxious these days. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, plen plenty of reason, and that's why we have uh, uh, an expert. Uh, formally uh, with the FBI. So I'm looking forward to that interview. Um, as I said earlier, my name is Mark LeBlanc. I've been in the field now going on 40 years. I've published six books and my latest book is titled Rainmaker Confidential. And I co-authored that with Henry DeVries uh, and David Goldman and, um, or excuse me, Henry and Scott Love and Henry and David Goldman are currently co-authoring a book titled Bringing in the Business Without Sounding uh, Like a Salesperson. So um, nice to be with you and nice to have you with us. Um, I'm excited to get this interview uh, rolling uh, because I know our guest uh, today. I've had the uh, privilege of getting to know him over the last, I want to say, five years uh, or so, and it all started with the Super Bowl in Minneapolis at U.S. Bank Stadium, where John was critically involved. Um, I think two years of preparations went into uh, keeping people safe uh, the week of the Super Bowl and, of course, during and immediately following the Super Bowl. Uh, but it is my distinct honor and pleasure to introduce John. Um, Yana, 
there I go. Uh, FBI John, um, I'm gonna let him share his last name uh, because he does it in a rather poetic way. It's like music uh, to my ears, Yanarelli, John Yanarelli. Um, John has served uh, as an FBI special agent for 20 years during which he was a SWAT team member and participated in the investigations of the Oklahoma City bombing, the 9-11 attack, the shooting of Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords and the Sony hack. He was recognized with the FBI Director's Award for Distinguished Service. As I shared, he's also uh, served as an NFL security representative responsible for ensuring the public safety through the football season, primarily the Arizona Cardinals, uh, if I have that factoid correct, and uh, the Super Bowl. He is the author of five books, including Why Teens Fail and What to Fix, A Parent's Guide to Protecting Their Children on the Internet and Other Dangers. His recently published book and his fifth book is titled Disorderly Conduct. Make a note to order the book Disorderly Conduct. It is one of the most fascinating and enjoyable and humorous reads. In fact, um, I called John, I got a copy, my own copy of the book and read three chapters, was laughing out loud and uh, picked up the phone and called John just simply to let him know how much I was enjoying the read, Disorderly Conduct. Um, he's a frequent on-air contributor in the national news um, media. He has presented and spoken to Fortune 500 companies, domestic and international audiences, the United Nations and the Vatican, where he has personally met with Pope Francis on more than one occasion. It is my honor to present to you our guest, FBI John. John, will you join me on camera here? And we're gonna put the spotlight on you. And why don't we just start with, give us a window into your world. Take four, five, six minutes and just bring us into your story. Well, Mark, first of all, thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to be here and get to talk to the audience a little bit about the things that I've been able to do and blessed with the opportunities that I've seen. Uh, as you mentioned, I've been an FBI agent, but I like to tell people I started off as a police officer in San Diego. I wound up going to law school nights and got my law degree and practiced law for a while before joining the FBI. So I have that distinction of having gone from one hated profession to another in my life. But and then after I left the FBI, finishing a full career, the NFL hired me and made me a security representative. It's an outside consultant doing the work that I did in the FBI, but now bringing it to the NFL in the NFL. And I think I was hired there because probably with FBI NFL, I can only remember three letters. So it was a good fit for me. But uh, the NFL, I had some amazing opportunities and great responsibilities. I've been at every Super Bowl since I've been hired, standing on the sidelines or at the players' bench. I've worked the season with various games around the country, all focused on keeping the players, the coaches, and most importantly, the fans safe. But beyond the NFL and the work I did in the FBI, today, now, 
What I do is I speak. I travel around the country and I talk at conferences in private sector and all different organizations about the safety and security issues that I was good at in the FBI. The FBI has a designation when you become an expert at something, they refer to you as a subject matter expert. And I had the good fortune to develop those skills in cybersecurity, preventing acts of terrorism. And sadly, in today's world, I'm a specialist in active shooter, not only what to do if such a situation happens, but how to look for it in advance and hopefully prevent it from occurring in the first place. So all of that is keeping me pretty busy hopping around the country. But with that, I'm here today and I'm looking forward to chatting about some of the issues of the day. Thank you, John, and I appreciate that. And like I said, it's an honor for me to uh, interview you. Thank you for giving us a bit of a window uh, into your world. Um, let's go back in your career, maybe, maybe on the beat uh, when you were a police uh, officer. Um, was there uh, a defining moment um, that led you to law that then connected the dots to the FBI? Well, let me take you back even a little bit earlier than that. So I'm in ninth grade and it's career day and there's an FBI agent there who comes in and talks. And from ninth grade on, I'm sold. This is what I wanna do. But it's pretty hard to get into the FBI. Uh, we hire about one person out of every thousand applicants. So I had sort of a roadmap of the things that I wanted to do to make me a better candidate. Being a police officer helps, but it's not enough. Most people in the FBI have advanced degrees and they actually have a program. If you have a law degree, you're given special consideration and looked at. So I knew I wanted to get law enforcement experience but I also wanted to go to law school and get my law degree to get into the FBI. So that was sort of my course and my plan. I was able to find a great job in law enforcement. San Diego was a fantastic city to work in. Go to law school nights at the University of San Diego. I was fortunate enough to be able to pass the bar and let me practice a little bit to get that experience. And then finally, my application was accepted and I got in the door. As an aside, and it's kind of interesting how God works in mysterious ways, that agent who had talked to me in ninth grade, 18 years had passed. I'm in the FBI Academy going through the 21 weeks of training, and we have this bar area you can go to after hours. I wander up there, and there he is. They're having his retirement party. I had not seen him in 18 years. He didn't know me. But I went up and was able to tell him, hey, I'm here because of you. And it's a nice example of how the legacy continues. Oh, my gosh. What a great story. I had not heard that one. Um, when, when you published five books, and uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm assuming, you, like your children, you love them all. Um, is, there a, is there a book that stands out? that has been uh, a bit of a, a, a game changer in your career? So you're right. You know, each book was different in its own way. And uh, I like to jokingly tell people, you can find all my books on my coffee table. Uh, sometimes you can find them on Amazon as well. But uh, I would say I love the disorderly conduct, the most recent, because 
It's my humorous side. It's the side that I enjoy chatting about and talking about and all the funny stories that every cop in the world could write this book with their own story. But I will have to tell you that the book I wrote, How to Spot a Terrorist, before it's too late. At the time, we were having a lot of terrorist events, which also include the active shooter. And we've always heard that phrase, if you see something, say something. But no one in the wisdom of the government has ever told us, what should we be looking for? I decided to write a book about the top 10 things that law enforcement looks for and how the average public can see it. Having written that book and put that out there, number one, the goal was to keep people safe. But it also put me on the map. I started getting calls from the news media, et cetera. Before I knew it, I had the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange commenting on the book on national news as to why people should read this. So it really helped establish me as an expert in that area, not just within the FBI circles, but publicly so that I can go out and speak. And my goal in speaking, terrible business model, Mark, but job one is to help people. Job 1A, of course, is I need to make a living, but job one is what I want to do. I'm still an FBI agent at heart, and that book helped me get out there and have people listen. John, did you um, did you write the book and then start speaking? Or, uh, I mean, it's clear to me that from the ninth grade to becoming a police officer, to becoming an attorney on the path to becoming an FBI agent, um, not many people wake up one day and say, I wanna be a professional speaker and write a book. At, at what point of your FBI journey, uh, as you were looking out after five years, 10 years, 15 years with everything that was going on, uh, what was the catalyst or the inspiration for you to say, I think I need to write a book. I, I, I think my career here is going to, you know, I'm going to tie a ribbon around it after, I don't know, maybe 18 or 20 years or 25 years. And I want to stand in front of groups. So in the FBI, there's a certain responsibility as you move up the line in the chain of command and become a leader you're expected to go out and speak publicly, community groups, things like that. And I had done that. But the call came one day and I was uh, plucked out of the field and sent to headquarters and made the spokesperson for the FBI. So after 9-11, I'm in Washington, D.C., and I have responsibility for addressing the national and international media. I'm helping other FBI executives in prominent positions speak to the media as well. And so I was out there quite a bit. If you were to Google me, you'll see thousands of hits, not because of me, but because of the work of the FBI I represented. So after that position, as I moved on to other things, I still got requests for me to speak. And I was able to do it as an FBI agent, even though no longer the spokesperson. And then finally, when I was getting ready to retire, I was getting these requests. And I politely told people, you know, I'd love to help you, but I'm retiring from the FBI. And they said, no, no, we want you anyway. And uh, what will it cost to get you? And a like went off. And I said, you know, uh, I can probably continue to do this because it appeals to my sense of wanting to make a difference and wanting to help people. And uh, I'm very fortunate that I'm actively engaged and uh, regularly on the road speaking or doing something virtually like we're doing today. Sure. 
And, and it's been a little while now that you've been out speaking for fee. Um, without sharing the amount, do you remember your first paid speech? I do. I remember it well. I received uh, $500, which I thought, oh, my God, I've hit the jackpot. $500, that's a lot of money, especially as an FBI agent. You are not paid very well. And all I had to do was get in my car and drive 300 miles round trip and talk for an hour and uh, do this. And then they would pay me. I, and I thought it was fabulous. And I was very content with that. But as time went on, you found that people were like, well, we'll pay you this. And they would call and say, would you be willing to, to do this for $10,000? And I was like, yeah, let me think for a second. OK. And so it was a great opportunity that, you know, people word of mouth got around and I started getting offers of greater and greater significance. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I, I, I don't get a chance and often a chance to ask this question. Um, Henry and I are incredibly uh, passionate and on purpose about helping people write the right book. And unfortunately, too many authors publish a book and stop. And you went on, I mean, I think I look back and one of the biggest mistakes I made in my career was I waited too long to get my first book, but then I waited 10 years before I did my second book. And, and what a mistake that was. As you went through the publishing journey of getting the second book, the third book, the fourth, what happened for you personally? So as time went on, I, I actually did a book before I joined the FBI, but I had a unique story to tell, very limited distribution. Nobody got wealthy on this book, but it was a good experience because learning how to write a book, as you know, it's a painful, painful chore that you love and uh, understanding what goes into it. Later on down the road, I decided, you know, here's another story that I need to write about. And that's where WTF came to be, that why teens fail. And then shortly afterwards, the uh, how to spot a terrorist. And in between, I wrote another cyber book. For me, it was about what's popping up that we need to talk about. Now, as a speaker, I think it's really important not only to have a book, but you've got to have some relevancy in that book. So I strive to get something new out at least every couple of years mm -hmm. to be relevant in the marketplace. I just met with Henry discussing we need to do a sequel to Disorderly Conduct because it's been well received and I have so many other stories to tell. Well, you are, I guess I'm going to say one of the, one of the lucky ones. <laughs> um, we use the phrase, it must be nice to have a career like yours that is fascinating and that people are, are captivated uh, by your stories. And you bring certainly your unique personality and sense of humor. I'm just a dry business speaker, um, you know, with some content. Uh, but but you've got a personality. So, you know, if only I had a career like yours uh, to fall back on, um, you know, I, I joke about that. Um, but my first book did really well, 
But I think internally, I thought, well, maybe that was a fluke. Mm. And then my second book came out 10 years uh, later, my book titled Never Be the Same. And I, I still feel it's my uh, cr the crowning achievement of my career. And then I, I waited seven years before my third book. And then I started putting out a book, you know, uh, every other year. But the fascinating thing was at books three and four, for me personally, I began to realize, no, this is not a fluke. Uh -huh. um, I, I've earned the right to a greater degree in terms of standing in front of a group. I do live at the intersection of experience uh, and expertise. And, you know, my line is Seth Godin didn't stop at Purple Cow. You know, thought leaders, people with a, a deep well of experience and expertise do not stop at one book. You're right, because we have so much to share. And if you're writing it for the right purpose, I mean, nobody's writing books to become wealthy unless you're a big name celebrity author. You're writing books so that you know you have information that if you don't share, it's going to die with you. You want to make sure it's out there so that not so that you can live in fame, but so that you could benefit other people and maybe make their lives a little better along the way. At least that's always been my goal. I think it's probably the same for you. Sure. You know, I, I, I usually do this at the end of an interview. I'm, I'm going to uh, bring it in earlier. I just want to publicly and personally acknowledge you for the, the good work that you've been called and compelled to do and that you're sharing uh, with the world. And when I think about your five books, um, you have a diversity of books and subject matters that help different slivers of the world. Can you talk a little bit about um, your book and um, uh, why teenagers fail? Uh, give us some insight into that book. Well, WTF, which we thought would be a great title and get a lot of attraction, but why teens fail and what to fix. There were so many issues going on. It was very much media driven at the time. Uh, the bullying of kids on the internet. You notice we don't hear as much about that anymore, but yet the problem really hasn't gone away. Uh, also just functioning in society. It's so much more complicated for kids today because of the internet. And what I was hoping to do is put out some of the issues that parents probably haven't even thought of and what they can do about it. For example, Mark, anybody who has young kids or grandkids, you know, we see these commercials for LifeLock and checking our credit and all that stuff, and we worry about ourselves. You need to be checking your kid's credit, anybody under 18. And the reason is, if I steal your credit, your information, you're going to find out pretty quickly. I steal a kid's you're not going to know until they turn 18 and go get a job to do something significant. By example, I had one young lady on her way to college, freshman. She finds out that she has a million and a half in debt in her name, which prevented her from getting student loans. But she also had a criminal record, all because she was a victim of a scam that somebody stole that information years ago. So these are the things that kids are getting saddled with, but don't know. And it's really the parent's job to protect them until the kids are old enough and mature enough to be able to protect themselves. Hmm. Wow. Uh, certainly would never have thought about that. 
Um, in your in your book, How to Spot a Terrorist, you suggested that uh, there were 10, 10 things to look for, 10 ways to spot a terrorist. Could you give us one or maybe two uh, uh, tips that could help us? Uh, well, because we're going through airports um, and, the, and the course of our life, what might we as mere mortals look for uh, in these places? Well, I'm glad you asked, because with that book, it's not just about terrorism. It's applicable, excuse me, applicable to the active shooter today and what you should look for and what you should do if, God forbid, something happens. But you mentioned airports. So, for example, every tip that I give is something that we see in a terrorist case. And usually you don't see just one. You might see three or four of them. So if I notice one of these indicators, as we call it, by the way, we don't profile in law enforcement. We don't care what your race, your religion. We profile what your activity is, what you're doing. Maybe I'll see one of those. That doesn't really mean a lot to me. But if I start seeing two or three, that's a warning sign to me that maybe I want to take some action. And what the public can do is pick up the phone and call law enforcement. So, for example, in airports, we've had airport attacks and bombings where in still photographs taken from surveillance cameras, you can see the attackers uh, walking around with one glove on. Now, why would somebody be wearing one glove? Well, the reason is if they're holding a trigger mechanism to detonate the bomb, they don't want a static charge setting off the bomb prematurely. So you see somebody walking around with one glove on, that's probably worth telling law enforcement there, hey, you know, that guy's... Dress like that, it's an indicator, something I want to check out. The other thing is no terrorist really commits an act without doing what's called a test run. 9-11, all the hijackers took multiple flights back and forth across the country in advance on the planes that were hijacked to see how the cabin crew reacted. That was actually spotted weeks before by a number of people who reported it but at the time, nobody knew what any of that meant, that why are these people flying these flights, sitting in chairs for six hours and not eating, not drinking, not reading a book, just staring straight ahead? Well, that might be an indicator today. We've seen other attacks where people will walk the path of where they need to go. Impersonation, the Oklahoma City bombing, that individual had conducted surveillance and went to a bunch of different buildings and went inside pretending to be somebody other than he wasn't to ask questions. So those are some of the things we look for. And basically there's 10 simple indicators that if you know them and recognize them, you might be able to prevent something from happening. Hmm. Wow. John, speaking of attacks, and it, it was, I mentioned it or alluded to it in your bio, uh, but I also remember the Mandalay Bay uh, shooting where you just happened to be in Las Vegas and on, on the scene or right there within minutes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's all a continuation of my speaking career. So I'm retired from the FBI, working for the NFL, and just finished a game in Arizona, hopped on a flight to Vegas because I'm giving a speech the next morning in Vegas, and I arrived at Mandalay Bay about an hour before the shooting began. Uh, I was able to quickly transition. I actually received a phone call from one of the national news outlets because by this point I was doing some news appearances and they said to me, hey, we're hearing about a shooting in Vegas. 
Can you make some calls and make an inquiry? And I tell them, I'm in Vegas. I'm here where the shooting's happening. And because Vegas is not this large media center like New York, L.A., uh, they really didn't have reporters on the ground other than the local affiliates. So I got thrown into the mix and I wound up covering the shooting during the actual time the shooting was occurring. And then for the next three days for NBC, Fox, CNN, and uh, it was an opportunity for me to bring a little bit of clarity to at this time was a very confusing issue. Nobody knew what happened, why it happened, how we could even prevent it. So that's what I was able to do with the Mandalay Bay, the tragedy that it was. Wow. Um, well, uh, you were meant to be there. Hmm. <clears throat> John, when you when you look back, I'm gonna I'm gonna refer specifically to your speaking career or the, the speaking chapter that you're currently in. Um, when you look back, let's say, if there was a day one where you were, an, you were officially a professional speaker, striking out on your own, knowing what you know today, if you could look back on that moment, day one, what advice would you give yourself today? Don't worry about people saying no. There, you don't need every speaking engagement out there. You only need a certain amount. And sometimes it gets to the point where you got too much. I think I was worried about rejection. Uh, and part of it is feeling a little bit like a fraud. And that who am I to go out and speak about these things? Because in my world, virtually any FBI agent I worked with could go out and do it as well. But the expertise that I have is not what's commonly shared in the public. So while there's many other agents qualified, they might not be as comfortable in front of an audience. But more importantly, the audience doesn't have what I need to share. And so value yourself, recognize you deserve to be here. If they don't want to hire you, they've gone in another direction. That's okay. There's plenty of work out there and it's not personal. It's just what they may be looking for is not what you have to offer at this time. Despite as confident as I am as an agent and law enforcement officer, it took a while to develop that sense of confidence as a speaker and be able to leverage that and be confident in knowing that I'm the right guy. One of the things today, Mark, is that I know you always get the question via email, what do you charge? Well, that's not the most important thing, but it is to them and their budget. I know if I can get them on the phone and talk to them and tell them who I am, they're going to pay whatever it takes to bring me in. And at the same time, I want to help. I'm going to work with what you have so that I can be there. You know, you you mentioned something uh, that, that maybe only people who have stood the test of time like yourself um, will are open to sharing. And that is in the beginning as a professional speaker, especially when you got that first gig for $500. Hmm. And um, it's one thing to be confident as an FBI agent, or it's one thing to be confident in my world as a business coach, but stepping out, um, you know, we grow up with different attitudes, values, beliefs, and behaviors around money. And when all of a sudden you can, you can command a fee for a one hour speech that is more than 
possibly what you earned in a month uh, mm -hmm. as, a, as an FBI agent, and you were putting your life on the line, that, that can play tricks <laughs> uh, uh, on our mind. How, how did you deal with the rising of your fees? How, how did that go for you? Great question. So first of all, the $500, my first speaking engagement, I feel like I stole it. I actually felt guilty about taking the money because it's just like, that's ridiculous. You're paying me $500 for this. I, it's not worth that kind of money. And then I realized quickly, it is. It, raising my fees was difficult because there's always that, eh, am I worth that much? And I still think to this day, I probably should be charging more than I do. And it's not just to become wealthy. I mean, that's the last thing because you know the speaking business, that money gets reinvested in other things, including helping other people that you would otherwise not be able to help. Uh, my speaking has enabled me to create a scholarship for other people mm -hmm. that want to go to law school, but instead of making the big bucks, go into public service in some capacity. So those are the things that I use that speaking revenue from, in addition to supporting my life child, uh, lifestyle. And I like to say my children selfishly want to go to college, so I want to pay for that as well. But raising the fee is just a recognition of, hey, this is what I'm worth. And again, there's always flexibility. I do a lot of free speaking, Mark, to this day, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of nonprofits, a lot of charities out there that can't afford it. And so those who can pay, they're enabling me to go and do those other things to continue to help a lot of people, not just those that can afford to hire me. Okay, so now I've got the headline. Distinguished FBI officer um, retires, commits fraud, feels like an imposter, steals $500 speaking fee. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to arrest him. Yeah, um, that's a classic. When, when, um, when you look back, whether it's more recent or earlier on in your career, when you think about filling your calendar with more speaking opportunities, is there a marketing strategy that you tried that ended up working better than you thought it would? Uh, yes, and I will tell you everything I know about marketing, I'm gonna be honest, I learned from you. One of the things without fail, I uh, do outreach to at least three people a day trying to generate business for myself, the storm starter, as you call it. Sure. And sometimes I just, my day is impossible. I can't do it. So if that's the case, then I know I'm doing six the day before so that I hit that minimum. I basically reach out to about 200 people a month. I try to do it Monday through Friday uh, and without fail. The reality is, you know, Maybe you're only going to get one or two engagements out of that 200, but how many do you need? Those one or two engagements is what I do, and it keeps me busy. And it's not just about the time you're on the stage. There's everything that goes in it beforehand. I'm uh, speaking to NYPD tomorrow, mm. and I'm doing that one for free because their training budget has been cut in the past couple of years with the Defund the Police movement but I'm gonna to try to help them know some of the issues that they need to address. My speaking elsewhere is enabling me to put the time in, develop the presentation for this group and get in front of them. So it's days of work for an hour of presenting. 
You know, it's interesting you share that strategy and and you're right, we do call it the storm starter strategy, reaching out either by phone or by text or by email, uh, you know, planting a few seeds uh, uh, each and every day. Um, you know, too often I think independent professionals think there's a, a quick fix. Hmm. Um, that there's some magic strategy, state-of-the-art, cutting edge, some internet strategy. And, and in the end, um, I think you and I are, are cut from a very similar cloth. It's about getting on the phone, planting seeds, having more conversations. And if it leads to one to four engagements, the ripple effect of those one to four engagements uh, leads to one to four more uh, engagements. Um, as you look out into the future, what are you most excited about uh, at this time in your career? So I'm actually working on transitioning and pivoting what I do just slightly. I've had a great six, seven years speaking and I still enjoy speaking and I'm not gonna say no to engagements when people reach out for me. It's a lot of fun. But anybody who's been on the road knows that life on the road is not the most fun you can have. It's challenging. I have done some great consulting work over the past five or six years in Hollywood, working on movies. I'm an FBI tech advisor is the official title. If you're familiar with IMDB, I have my own page with the credits of things that I've worked on. And I've had some more opportunities to get involved. I'm working on a project now where if it gets picked up, I'm going to get a producer credit out of it, in addition to being the advisor. It keeps me in one place a little more often, but it's exciting when you see what you worked on up on the big screen. Oh, oh that's exciting. Um, John, I'm, I'm going to make this request publicly, and that is we haven't had a virtual coffee for a while uh, or happy hour. So uh, let's get something on the calendar here in the next month or two uh, when your schedule allows Again, I just want to say thank you for the good work that you are called and compelled to do and that you will continue to do. It has been a real honor to interview you here today. Do you have one more tip that you might give our listeners or viewers? Thanks for the opportunity to do that. So my forte is in cybersecurity and all things cyber, in addition to everything else I've talked about and how to keep yourself from becoming a victim. Uh, really simple. You've heard this millions of times about having a strong password, things like that. What I would advise you to do is, uh, I'm going to give you up some practical advice to using the internet, especially when you're making purchases. Have two credit cards. You want to have two credit cards, one to use when you walk around and make purchases, go to a restaurant, another card for everything you do online, and all those automatic payments that you make. Now, which one is most likely to get compromised? It's the one when you're walking around with. You know, you're turning that credit card over to a stranger every time you buy something or go to a restaurant. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes and if they're saving that information. Your cards online are pretty secure, but if one gets compromised, you don't have to worry about changing all your automatic payments. You are secure because you had two different credit cards, you canceled one's credit, that was compromised, get a new card, everything else continues to operate. In addition to that, do not use an ATM card ever for purchases. 
Use your ATM debit card for getting money out of your bank, and that's it. When they steal the credit card company's money, they're stealing the credit card's company's money. When they steal the debit card's money, they're stealing your money, and you got to convince the bank it wasn't your fault. That's how you keep yourself safe. Who knew? I did. <laughs> Thank you, John. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me today. Hey, thanks for everything you taught me and uh, the good work that you do. You're helping people do what I do and do what others do of succeeding and educating people out there in the workplace. Uh, thank you, John. I appreciate that. Well, and that's another episode of Marketing uh, with a Book. And we want to thank John one more time and our studio audience and those of you that have joined us uh, after the fact and are listening to this weeks and months and years into the future. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap.